Marquise, we got Mark on the line. What do you want hey, to ask Mark, him? So, um, so when you're syndicating, like, uh, what metrics are you looking in regards to um, your hold patterns? Tip will underwrite for five, six years, depending on the deal. Rarely it'll be seven, but let's say five or six years. And some investors will say, well, I want to know exactly what your exit strategy is in year five. Well, you know what? I would never invest in a deal if someone told me I'm selling in year five. Why would I do that? The market could be horrible at that time. So you need multiple exit strategies. We've had properties where we said, hey, well, it's a five-year pro forma, and we sold in 14 months. It made sense to do it. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. This is episode number 154 and part of our Ask the Experts series. Today, we speak with experienced investor, Mark Kenny and aspiring investor Marquise Campbell. Keep listening for tips on how to find the right property and scale your business. And now the show. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital, and I'm very excited for today's show. It's one of our Ask the Expert episodes. We've got two amazing people on the line with us. We've got a man with a ton of experience in this business, Mark Kenny, and a motivated aspiring investor, Marquise Campbell. So first, Mark started investing in real estate when he was a senior in college um, over 25 years ago. I'm sure that's a typo. It's probably 15 years ago, right, Mark? Um, Unfortunately, it's more than 25 now. <laughs> I don't want to update it because people can tell how old I am. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But uh, going moving along, he's purchased over 10,000 units and currently owns 8,709 different states. He's purchased all property types from 46% occupied to 98% occupied and has added value through management capex ranging from 5k 5k a door to 20k a door. Those 20k a door ones are fun. And prior to becoming a full-time real estate investor, he was a CPA and had his own IT company where he provided consulting services to Fortune 500 companies. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is this is a lot of fun. I've I've been following you for a while, and we actually had a couple of people on the podcast uh, two weeks ago who who were part of your Think Multifamily. So actually, let, let's let's do this. Why don't you tell before we we kick into everything? Why don't you tell everybody what Think Multifamily is, and and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, great. Uh, so we focus one hundred percent on multifamily. So we we obviously mm-hmm. purchase multifamily properties, but we also host events, uh, live events. Uh, typically in the Dallas area where I live. And then it could be kind of general, different parts of multifamily. We also do a deal analysis workshop, which is kind of hands-on, mm-hmm. bring your computer, work through deals together for a few days. And so we have a coaching program as well. So people that are trying to get involved in syndication, maybe not sure where to start or looking for a community, people that can come in and help them. We provide one-on-one coaching uh, in that right. respect. And I, I do all the one-on-one coaching in our group. We don't have sub-coaches or anything like that as well. Nice. Yeah, I've heard, heard a lot of great things about it. You know, like I said, we brought on, um, let's see, Mike Van Gronigan and Tyler Caglia. Uh, right. they, they both spoke very highly of you. So I was super excited when you uh, when you said you'd be on the podcast. But that said, why don't you give us a little bit about your background and history and, and tell us what kind of led you up into apartment investing? Yeah, so I grew up in Michigan. I'm one of seven kids. I have identical twin brother, both probably uh, pretty analytical, both CPAs, both did IT. 
but pretty young age, we were like, man, this kind of stinks, you know, buying your own shoes and clothes and bikes when you're like 10 years old and seeing my dad work literally you know, hundred plus hours a week. Cause he was a firefighter plus worked full time, another job in addition to that. So he was gone a lot. And when he was home, he's working on cars, breaking down and TVs and all that. So my brother and I look at each other and go, man, this is not fun. We don't want, we don't want to be in that situation. So really didn't know what we're going to do, but we were seniors in college and we're like, we like real estate. Why don't we go look at some, some real estate? So we started looking mm-hmm. together. We started buying small properties, two to four units together. Didn't know what syndication, you know, raising capital from other people even was at that time. Started buying in our, in our uh, hometown. Uh, in Michigan and continued to work corporate jobs mm-hmm. and uh, did you know pretty well. I mean, from all, a lot of respects, financially, if you want to say, I started IT business. But my biggest thing was I was working, you know, minimum probably, you know, 90, 90 plus hours a week. Yeah, I would sleep about three hours a night, not like once in a while, but that was my routine. I really didn't take care of myself as far as eating and uh, you know, fortunately, I was I was spent some time with my kids, which was good because they were mm-hmm. little. But I neglected my wife to meal and really didn't have time. People all over the world on projects and my phone going off like 24 hours a day, literally. Yeah. And so my wife is like, you know, um, to me, it was like, you need to do something different. This is not working out. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm thinking like, well, kind of is what it is. But I'm like, we both like real estate. because We mm-hmm. to me and I started buying real estate, too. We got married pretty young bought together. She said, well, uh, why don't we start buying larger properties? And I said, well, you're gonna have to help me. So mm-hmm. that was where um, we ended up getting involved in the larger kind of hundred plus unit properties and looking at syndicating. We invested passively first with uh, a friend of ours in a multifamily investment through some retirement funds and did that a few times and then decided to try to do it on our own. And it took us about a year to find our first deal. I mean, I mm-hmm. was, you know, everyone has an excuse. I really was super, super busy. Plus, we were distracted looking at other opportunities outside of real estate as well, like franchises. And yep. my whole thing was trying to find an out from my my grind, if you want to say. It wasn't so much financially. In fact, I thought I would probably make less money doing real estate than I was, was in my IT business. But that was okay <laughs> with me because I needed to get my time back and kind of get yep. my relationships back on track. Yeah, that that's absolutely crucial. I mean, if you were only sleeping three hours a day and then... You know, all of a sudden you have to do more. Hey, you work on relationship. You know, where, where's the time come from? So, right. yeah, I, I think I would I would take a pay cut to have better quality of life. But I, I think it's a good trade. Very, very good trade there. For sure. Now, you, you said when you started out, you had no idea what a syndication was. You know, where where along the line did you you figure out, hey, we can syndicate. We can use other people's money. We can bring in investors. Yeah, my wife, she was a nurse at the time and she worked mm-hmm. with somebody and, and um, her husband was just getting into syndication and he had a, I had, we were over our house and he was talking to me about, you know, some real estate he was doing. It was, I think his first deal was 116 doors. Okay. And uh, I'm like, you know, sounds interesting. And, you know, it made a lot of sense. I was pretty quick to pick up the analysis pieces because my background and things like that, yep. everything looked good. And I had already been buying smaller multifamily. So I said, oh, I'll put some money into his deal. Did that mm-hmm. after a few months, I'm like, kind of learned more and more. And then I'm kind of like, well, I think we could probably syndicate our, ourselves. Technical knowledge, my thing that really concerned and really kind of petrified me was raising capital. Yeah, That was the biggest thing that really scared me um, to syndicate. All the other aspects of it, building relationships, visiting properties, analyzing it, getting loans, all that stuff I really wasn't that concerned about, but it was the capital side that concerned me. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be honest, you know, my, I'm, I'm a very technical guy. I got two degrees in math, you know, so I remember that. Uh, 
Yeah. So it's just one of those where I had the same, same thing coming in. It's just like, okay, I can, I can analyze, you know, I, I can call, I can call brokers. I can ask them questions. I can get all the information I need. I can work in that relationship. But I was the same way. Capital raising scared me. Got over the hump though, but that was my biggest fear going in. What, what did you do to get over it? I mean, what, uh, how, how did you guys get past that? Well, the first deal we did, I mean, for all practical purposes, was a smaller raise. This was a number of years ago, but about a million dollar raise. And fortunately, uh, I had a partner at the time that could cover a bit of it if we didn't raise it. So, I mean, I probably had it easier than some other people. Uh, he wasn't going to cover it all, maybe cover half of it. And I have been doing IT for a long time and we were going to events and meeting people. And so we felt fairly comfortable we could raise it. We didn't mm-hmm. really know, but just kind of putting it out there. And then I talked to a ton of people about the deal and they knew I was already doing some real estate, but not to that level. So my prior experience, even though it was small scale, helped some, not not a lot, Mm -hmm. but helped some. So it was really just getting out there, taking action, didn't know where it was going to go. Let's see. But like I said, having someone that could cover, let's say maybe half of that at the time gave me more comfort level. Yeah, yeah, you had a little bit of a safety net there, you know. It's uh, we we need to raise a million, but really we need to raise raise five hundred k, and that's that's, right. uh, that's much more bite size. I, I don't know. Some somehow when I was starting out, and you know, let me know if it's the same with you. But once once you put that million dollar price tag on the back, for some reason, difference between you know nine hundred and ninety nine thousand and one million, they're big yeah. big mental jump for me. It is for sure. Like you mentioned, you kind of, you go through it, you learn a lot. I think a lot of it comes down to people just, tr- you know, trusting you. Um, I had been, I'd done business with a lot of people and, you know, had a good reputation as far as doing what say is going to do and things like that. Plus I invested passively in a few deals before I started syndicating, which gave me a little bit of credibility too, because I was, you know, for a partner in some deals that way. Um, so I had a few of those things going for me, I guess as well. All right. Nice. Well, good. So let's let's talk about some of those deals. You know, so pick pick a deal or or tell us kind of your your overall criteria. Let us know type of stuff that you guys do. So we bought pretty much everything. You know, from A mm-hmm. to C. So if you're not familiar with that, just think of new buildings yeah. versus all the buildings. And yeah, uh, you know, my whole thing is we we still buy all different types because mm-hmm. we do have a group and people in the group look at a lot of different deals. And I, I kind of like more the, the B ish type assets, frankly, the, the issue with some of the older buildings are, you know, usually plumbing for one, it can be right. Yep. Depending on what they've done for upgrades and things like that, or it could have like a chiller system, which is one unit to heat and cool the entire property and a couple of stories around, around those situations yep. too. But, you know, as far as deal wise, you mentioned, you know, we bought properties 46% occupied to 98%. We actually did one recently, uh, 0% occupied, wow. which is actually better than 46 because you don't have to contend yeah. with people living there, right? Um, you just go but straight I think to that, your CapEx. Oh, and, yeah. And done. Yeah. Renovate right. and, and start <clears throat> filling. So that's right. And yeah. you kind of section it off and things like that. But I think mm-hmm. starting out, I don't think it's a great idea unless you have a lot of experience in construction. I don't think it's a great idea to buy a property like that, your first property. I think it's it's riskier and could, good chance going to cost you more money, take more time, things like that. And uh, But you know that 46% occupied within 15 months, we did a refi, which is very fast. And we pulled mm-hmm. out like 87% of the capital, which is a lot. Wow. Yeah, uh, sure. But it was, you know, it's it's first kind of deal we did like that. So it was riskier. Um, so you have to be, you have to kind of define your criteria and see whether you're willing to take those risks or not as an investor mm-hmm. and or as a syndicator. But I would, you know, personally, I think, you know, I wouldn't want to do all deals like that because they yeah. are, they are riskier and 
like I said, that one just happened to be where it was about $14,000 door CapEx. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything worked out, you know, even better than anticipated, which is not the case. Lots of times things happen, but it did mm-hmm. on that property. So we, you know, we started buying other properties like that as well that were kind of, you know, in distress and, and things like that. So I like the distress ones for the big potential payday, but they're also bigger mm-hmm. headaches. Yeah. Yeah. And that risk versus reward and, and work versus reward. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. Our, our, uh, our third property, we, we purchased at 55% occupancy and, you know, it's, it's been a long road so far and we're, we're getting there and you're right. It's the smallest property we have, but it's also the biggest headache we've had, you know, yeah. completely hands down. Anyway, we're, we're at a point right now where we're, we're almost done with all the renovations, the occupancy is coming up. So we're about ready to have the, the good news story and the, and the refinance coming up here soon too. So yeah, you know, knock on wood so that I don't jinx myself, but yeah, uh, it's risk versus um, reward, which is totally true from a financial standpoint. And then it's the, it's the stress related to some of those deals, right? Um, typically yeah. they're in, yeah. you know, a little bit rougher markets, not always, but sometimes mm-hmm. Um, so you're contending with, you know, some other things like, you know, the crime and those aspects of it as well, which can cause yeah. some stress for you as a operator. Yeah. Our, our biggest stress has actually been the housing authority. It's a, it was a, it's a project-based housing, which uh, I would also not recommend for, you know, first or second deal, but we saved it for our third deal. And I would probably not recommend it for your third deal now that we've done it. But I, I think the biggest stressor on that one has been working with the housing authority, just because government agency, they work at their own pace, you know, and oh, uh, yeah. they're not in a hurry for anything. But that said, let's uh, shift gears. One of my favorite questions to ask uh, anybody is about your why. What is your big burning why? I mean, my, my why originally was kind of get time back with my wife and probably get yeah. my life more in balance as far as it didn't look like I was unhealthy, but I had to be unhealthy. I really wasn't doing anything other than work yeah. and stress and then not eating much food either on a daily basis. So getting my life back to where, I mean, a marriage was is great now. It's been great for, you know, for five years, but mm-hmm. I've been married for 26 years. So, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> we to, you know, the harder times where I was working those long hours, yeah. but, but that was the biggest thing initially. And then when we started Think Multifamily, um, there were two aspects to it. One, you know, I'm more of a transactional guy, wanted to continue transactions. I felt like uh, there were a lot of people trying to trying to teach or teaching. You're know, either, I don't know, either lazy or don't care or whatever it might be. Not really teaching all aspects of the business, which really frustrated me. And mm-hmm. I'm like, man, I wish I would have known all these things when I did my first deal. And then the other aspect yeah, of it was community, community, which was less of a... Mm-hmm. about an idea for me, frankly, because I was just a transactional guy. My wife to me was like, hey, we're going to we're gonna build this community and all that. I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I'm just doing transactions. But, you know, fortunately, all our relationships now come from the group. We go out to dinner from every Friday night with some people in the group. Mm-hmm. We just got back from Clearwater, Florida with, I think we had like over 70 people nice. with kids and stuff in, in the group there. So it's all the the, the other aspects of it, you know, we had a mentor once before that said, you know, oh, you don't have to like me. I'm like, man, it sure be nice if I did be a lot better, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So we it's wanted better. to develop yeah. the whole thing. You know, my whole thing was I want the most educated people doing deals, be, you know, do what we say we're going to do. We're good buyers. We're good sellers. And then the whole community aspect of it, people coming together, helping each other, not competing against each other, but then also you know, kind of doing life together where our kids grow up together. You know, we hang out together on vacation. We have some people from the West mm-hmm. Coast to come in, you know, three, four times a year, spend time with us and just, just stuff like that, that makes it that much better because I didn't have that before. 
You know, and that that's something like I like I said, I've talked to a handful of people that are that are inside your community. And that's one of the things that they all point to as being the biggest benefit. It, it's, you know, hey, we're all friends, you know, we're all um, hanging out together, going places together. Right. So I, I think what, whatever, whatever you guys are doing, it's yeah. working. So, yeah. so I sat back and just kind of reflecting on where I've been and how far I've come. And I've realized that it's been the people that I've met that have pushed me the furthest. Hasn't been, you know, transactions or anything else. It's always been people. Right. So there, there's something something about that community that, uh, that really gives people. Yeah, that's great. Anyway, last question before we bring Marquise on. What, what's next for you? Uh, well, you know, my whole goal has been to, there are probably people, similar situation to me, maybe not as bad, some cases maybe worse. And we want to provide an opportunity for people if they want to buy multifamily, provide the opportunity to coach, mentor, whatever, partner up on deals and really help people go as fast as they can. And then retire as fast mm-hmm. as they can. Retire is relative. Are people sitting on the beach? Yeah. No, they're usually typically doing things, but we've had a number of people that have been able to quit their W-2 jobs. Mm-hmm. It's either probably they quit or get fired because they're working, <laughs> they're doing they're doing both at once, right? Oh, I'm going to try to do multifamily on the side, mm-hmm. right? So we had a number of people that have been able to, we get a lot of yeah. people that reach out to us in the group, either call or, or text or email just about how they they feel their life has changed like drastically. And I always say, well, you know, they thank us and, and all that. I'm like, that, yeah, great. We, we started the company, we provide community and training and coaching, mm-hmm. but the end of the day, if they didn't take action, nothing would happen. So they, yeah. they have to, most people don't want to like, you know, say, oh, well, I, I did it because I, you know, took action, things like that. But there are people that don't take any action, just like fitness, right? If you hire a coach and you don't ever go to the gym, mm-hmm. good luck. Yeah, that's not his fault. It's yeah. your fault, right? So, same yeah, same thing exactly. for, for us. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, a lot of a lot of things there that resonate. I mean, just just with my job, technically, I'm still active duty military. You know, so I, I've got I'm in my transition time. You know, but when you said quit or be fired, you know, I, I think if if I were in any other job, if I wasn't like a government employee in the military, and where I'm at, I'd almost have to commit a felony to get. Right. fired or kicked out but any other job i probably would have been fired you know because that, that's exactly what happened it's you know i'm spending so much time and effort on 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 multifamily that you know my, my day job kind of kind of fell by the wayside and i i see that happening a lot and for a lot of people it's like all right i'm done done with this moving on yeah. to that but that's uh, one of the advantages having anyway. people you partner up with too is maybe you have a busy season right and you have other times mm-hmm. you're slower you can hey I'm i'm busy right now you know whoever the other person is in your partnership, can you take care of this? So that's one of the mm-hmm. advantages too. Yeah. You're going to make less because you have more people involved reality, but you're typically doing yeah. less as well yeah. and focusing hopefully on the areas that you're, you're good at, you like to do versus working in all the areas. And some of them guaranteed in some areas you're not going to like as a, as a syndicator. Yeah. You know, and that's that there is something to say about that. Um, you know, our company, there's five of us uh, started out with four, hence four Oaks capital, but we all have our very narrow lanes that we work in and we're all in lanes that we're good at and enjoy. Great. So yeah, you, you're split the profits five ways, but I wouldn't have it any other way. But um, I know, I know some people like different models, but uh, I like, oh, I like works, what we got going. For you, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that said, let's uh, shift gears again and, you know, let's bring Marquise on. You know, Marquise is a, is a native of, of New York, born in the city, raised in, in Albany. Now you're in Jersey working in, in New York City, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Um, All right. In Jersey now and, uh, and it's definitely it's hot today and I'm, I'm happy to be home to get on this podcast. And thank you for the time, Brian. I appreciate it. 
Yeah. As far, as far as your bio, you've been an investment sales broker at Cushion Wake, which is a big, uh, you know, multifamily or not just multifamily, but commercial real estate uh, brokerage. I'll tell you, tell you what, let's just let's just get your bio from you. Tell us about yourself. And for anybody listening, I'll just I'll, I'll throw his bio down in the show notes. But Marquise, go ahead and tell us about yourself and uh, what brings Definitely. you here. Um, so I am pretty much uh, from Albany, New York. I was born in New York City. Was a basketball guy. I uh, had a college scholarship to play at Concordia College, uh, Division II school. Uh, nice. Didn't have the hops like LeBron James to get to NBA, so uh, <laughs> I decided to pivot to uh, doing what I know best, and I was using my degree. Um, so I started to work in uh, sales. Uh, and to be ironic, my first job out of college was car sales, um, mm-hmm. and that's when I learned the psychology of selling. Um, using my ability to uh, build rapport with people um, and just learning how um, money works in, in different type of ways um, and uh, learning commission as yep. well, um, being an entrepreneurial spirit. And, um, you know, one day, you know, I, I just started noticing that my time, kind of like you, Mark, you know, I'm, I'm, I was young at the time. So uh, at yeah. 21, I need time, I guess. But I noticed my Saturdays were mm-hmm. going away and then um, my mother fell ill with breast cancer. So I had to move upstate back to Albany and, um, you know, just help out around the family on um, be there as a support system and kind of just pivot. When I was in Albany, I started to see a lot of investment commercials and um, with real estate. And, I'm, mm-hmm. and I always was kind of like worried about those things. But obviously stuff was happening around the capital region as well. I started to see a lot of new developments go up, um, money being parked to different mm-hmm. areas. So one day I decided to, you know, go and visit the, uh, you know, one of these investment communities and at a hotel and just hear what they had to offer. And ever since then, my mind has been focused on real estate and, and creating generational wealth for my family, um, especially since, you know, I'm a firstborn American. My mother is from Jamaica and we're mm-hmm. four of us and uh, we've rented most of our lives. And a lot of people in our community, um, in many communities, don't understand the concept of that they are paying rent to another individual who um, who is a, a landlord mm-hmm. and operator. That spurred my interest even more, and I kind of wanted to understand uh, real estate from a micro and macro point of view. And I decided the best way to do mm-hmm. that was getting my hands dirty and learning how to be a broker. And um, I've been blessed with the opportunity to uh, work at Cushman and Wakefield, um, doing uh, brokerage and then middle markets division and investment sales. Um, I operate and mm-hmm. uh, selling anything, any building um, from northern Manhattan all the way to in the Bronx. Um, and anywhere in the tri-state area mm-hmm. uh, specifically, um, I'm able to leverage those services. And um, my experience um, thus far with Cushman and Wakefield has been great, but it's even just just honing in the fact that my end goal is to, um, you know, um, invest like how you guys are doing yeah. in the syndicate. So, um, you know, that's a little bit about me, um, just humble beginnings. And I'm excited yeah. to be on the show and just to dig in and learn a little more. Yeah. I, so, so one thing I absolutely love is, I mean, you wanted to learn more. So you, you, you throw your towel in with, with cushion wake and that's something that, uh, you know, I read about, you know, a long, long time ago, Robert Kiyosaki and rich dad, poor dad, which is probably mentioned on every single episode talks about getting jobs to learn. And, and part of me wishes that if I could go back, you know, 20 or 30 years, 30 years, maybe too long, 25 years that I would have gotten jobs to learn about things like you did, but I love it, you know, um, humble beginnings and let's see if we can, uh, you know, step it up a notch, but talk to me later. I got a buddy from, from Jamaica, you know, I'll I'll introduce you guys later and see see if you guys can hit it off, but he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. So you, you talked a little bit about, you know, your, your reason, but if you can boil it down to, to, you know, one or two sentences, what's your big burning why? Yeah. So I, 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 w- I would say two, two words, self-sufficiency mm-hmm. and generational wealth. 
uh, I, I've seen, um, you know, through my family, I've seen, uh, you know, um, just just uh, just the importance of having um, um, stuff to pass down to generations behind because you're giving them a, a leg up on the whole mm-hmm. competition of life. And uh, and yeah. in general, um, I feel like uh, when being an investor, you're also doing the community service as well by, you know, beautifying communities and, and developing communities or, um, you know, as well as creating housing when needed. So it's 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 selfish yeah. and selfless at the same time for me. And um, that, that's mm-hmm. my that's my passion. I, I know I'll, I'll definitely attain it. So. Yeah, I saw somebody throw on LinkedIn last week the the phrase "grow to give." You know, so you know there, there's one thing. You know, it's it's hard to be a philanthropist. It's hard to give back if you're broke <laughs> yourself. You know, it's hard to help somebody up if if you're at the same level on the ground. You've you've got to be able to grow to give back and. I, I don't think that's, you know, selfish at all. I think that's just part of what you have to do. You know, you. so that said, you know, Marquise, we got Mark on the line. What do you want to hey, ask Mark, him? So um, appreciate the time. I have a lot of questions. Uh, one specifically, uh, you were mentioning, you know, um, how at first you were nervous, you know, about talking about capital um, and asking for capital as well as Brian. Um, and, you know, I, when I'm on, as a broker, I'm on the phone all the time with, with you know, just a lot of people um, and a lot of people of influence as well. And, um, you know, it's easy to ask for the sale for a building. Hey, um, you know, I, I have a, a, a machine behind me. I'll be able to market your building the proper way. But I, that hump of asking for, for the capital, when did you just like say, this is the method I'm going to use to ask for the capital? And when did you implement it? Like what methodology? Yeah. Pretty, at first, you kind of you try to raise capital. You're going to have a lot of questions asked of you, and you're like, "Okay, I wish I knew the answer to this." And then you just get to where you can almost predict every question someone's going to ask, and within within reason, right? Um, for me, my biggest thing was rather than trying, if you want to say, you know, ask for money, I you know initially I probably didn't do a very good job understanding what the investors' goals were. I didn't. I want. I mean, you have money to raise. You want money, right? And then uh, pretty early on, I started asking people what their goals were. And you can ask investors too that we, we deal with that. There are a number of investors I've talked out of deals before where they were probably ready to invest or I've you know suggested they put a lower amount in. So first and foremost, I think is understanding what their situation is financially and then also what their criteria is and not trying to just put them in the deal that you have active. Um, I can tell you that goes a long ways because people are like, man, I, I can't, you know, thank you for doing that. Right. Because I, you know, might be trying to get into it. Uh, they want cash flow, but the deal is, you know, 50% occupied, not going to cash flow for 18 months or two years and things like that. So trying to be a little bit more of a, on the financial advisor perspective, not financial advising them, but understanding their goals. And then the other one I got really good at, which you're probably better at now because you do sales is like, it's okay if they say no. Right, it's not a reflection necessarily of you. It could be a reflection of the deal. The deal doesn't fit with their criteria. That's totally fine. Right. So I guess it was more not really asking for money, understanding their criteria, understanding what deals they like and don't like, and then trying to guide them that way, and then just presenting the deal to them. If they say no, it's a no. But we've had people that literally have gone three, four years never investing in a deal, and then they invest. So don't mm-hmm. don't get to the point. Be patient. I've had people send me tons and tons of questions before. Frankly, it takes time to do that. And some people might say that's pretty annoying. Somebody sends you 40 questions, which, you know, it is in some respects, right? But just being patient, working with them, understanding it's it's their life savings or a big chunk of it potentially. They're investing for, you know, you mentioned legacy, right? For generational wealth. They're trying to maybe do the same thing. So 
just trying to steer them that way. And then uh, I would say also is trying to get uh, hooked up with somebody that has a, a track record. It's just going to make your life a lot easier for capital raising if you can rely on somebody else's track record. Just, just reality. So I also, um, one of the things that like intrigued me, working in, in the city as well as, um, you know, seeing how multifamily in New York is pretty restrictive here. I mean, the rent laws are are, are very restrictive, um, you know, um, stuff that's going for five caps, six caps and other markets, you know, you just buy stuff for a higher cap rate and curve risk, but you know, you're going to get a little return without the restrictions of, you know, legislation. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at these secondary markets, A, what do you look at in regards to, because um, you're from Michigan and uh, now you're in Dallas, I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming something like Led you to Dallas, and that's a great yeah reason. work work, and it's it's much much different for sure. <laughs> so Michigan's probably more along the lines of people that grow up in my hometown, for example. You know, my four sisters live there. I have two brothers, but four sisters live in in the town I grew up in. They're you know within two miles of my mom, and so that's not uncommon. People grow up there. They don't really move. They don't really travel much. Things like that. Versus a Dallas, for example, very transient people move here from all over the world and then leave. And then and more people move here and things like that. So we buy a lot in secondary markets. We buy, you know, some primary markets too. The the thing I like about some of the secondary markets that we've invested in, uh, one, the the rental percentage is very, very high number of people that rent because again, they grew up there, they live there, they never, never move. In some cases, uh, property taxes are not increased as much in some of the smaller markets. There's not, which is great. And during COVID, we had some secondary markets where the judges were still evicting people, not paying your rent, you're out. It's not going to happen typically in a Dallas. It's not going to happen in New York for sure, but it wasn't happening in Dallas or Atlanta or any of those markets were in either. So I do like that about the, the uh, kind of secondary markets. Some of the disadvantages, I would say, it can be harder to find management there. Just can, they're not, not as many management companies as an example, is a, is a general statement. So that can be harder. Um, there are other things like, you know, finding labor sometimes can be harder. It just is. But as far as rent control, I would, I would never buy in an area that had rent control period. In fact, we have a, a guy in our group that he had bought a lot on his own. I think he had like 250 units, smaller properties and things like that on his own, not through syndication. And, you know, whatever it was a year and a half ago when some things in New York changed with a uh, rent control, things like that, you know, he, he calls that his property values went down 30% overnight. Yeah, HS, the HSTPA, oh, um, 2019. Yeah. Yep. yeah, so, I mean, yep. you know, those type of things. So I would say people will also say, well, this, you know, Georgia or wherever is, you know, Florida or whatever it is, is, is landlord friendly. Not necessarily. We're in Georgia up and down from north, you know, to Dalton all the way down almost to Florida. And mm -hmm. it, the, it, the court system, right, will dictate, the judge there will dictate on how they handle evictions and things like that, you know, COVID or not. And, you know, we own a couple properties in yeah. Savannah, which frankly wasn't uh, landlord friendly even before COVID, even though people say Georgia is mm -hmm. landlord friendly. So you have to be careful about that too. But the biggest thing is that trying to raise capital can be harder in some secondary markets, yeah. unless you have a story. We own like in Dalton, Georgia. Most people don't even know what it is, unless you're from Atlanta area. It's phenomenal. We own Gainesville, Georgia. Most people never heard of that. It's phenomenal. So some of those smaller markets, mm -hmm. you need a story to be able to convey. Once you have one good story there, it's much, much easier because you can say, look, this is basically a rinse and repeat, almost a duplicate of what we just bought. And then you can share that story. But your first time going in, I would make sure it's a lower raise, you know, and not try to do a huge deal in a market like that. 
and then build the track record there in that market. Um, and then you can start doing larger deals and things like that. But but we like secondary markets in quite a bit. Yeah, we, we like secondary markets too. I think, you know, you do pay a premium for things like management and construction yeah. because, you know, a lot of times you're, you're taking crews that are right. traveling, you know, if they've got to travel 60, 80 miles, you know, they're going to give you an upcharge on, on mileage both right. ways, you know, so just, just things you've got to, you've got to build into your, your numbers and your model. But most of our properties are in South Carolina and we were lucky enough to have judges that were also evicting yeah. during COVID. And we, we have one, our largest properties in Augusta. Yeah. And I'll say the same, South Carolina is more landlord friendly than Georgia is, is, you know, that's, that's our take so far. No, I agree. The one property we have there. So I am um, good place. I also I, like just seeing the trajectory. I love to like be in the pulse of what's happening in, in real estate. I know a lot of um, people I've talked to specifically from New York, they, they, they moved to Texas and Florida, but more importantly, um, their investment strategies have changed to a lot of single family investment properties. And they build these, these single family properties and uh, pre- pretty much make these little communities and whatnot. Are you, are you privy to that as well? Are you, are you usually building up? Or instead of just, you know, a single family here. We've only really done one development project. Nothing wrong with it. Not really a specialty of ours. The I know a lot of people that do exactly what you said. They're building, you know, 100, 150 houses, um, self-contained, things like that. I don't think anything wrong with that. Not something we really do. But it's almost to me, you know, as long as you're doing something, you're educated about what you're doing. Whether you're, you know, buying a single family house or buying, you know, a 500 unit property, obviously a big difference there, but at least you're doing something Right. versus the person, my dad talked about it, you know, he passed now, but, you know, he talked about buying real estate since I was little, never bought anything ever. So I, I think there's, you know, nothing wrong with that. I will tell you from doing it, doing small properties, two to four units, trying to self-manage and, and things like that. Horrible for me. I mean, I. It almost ruined my whole take on real estate. You know, um, it did, but I learned a lot by doing it. I actually probably would not do it again if I had a choice um, because the learning wasn't that great. It was a pain. So, but those communities like that, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I would just say, no matter what you're doing as an investor or as a lead, you better make sure you're educated enough and or team up with somebody that's been through it before. I, w- I wouldn't go out and say, I'm going to go build a hundred houses without having somebody that's done it before. I just wouldn't do yeah. it. And I agree. I agree. Part of it is is dependent on what area you're in. I'm in Idaho Falls and you know a lot of predictions are that Idaho Falls is going to double in size in 10 years, you know, and that's that's a big change. And there's developments going up all over the place, you know. So here where we're at right now, it makes a lot more sense to there, there's not a lot of existing apartments, you know, it's it's you know, sixty thousand going to two hundred thousand is, is where they are right now. But depends on where you are. Here, I think you, the the money's at the new developments. And yeah. incidentally, I've invested passively in in one of those, and I'll, I'll probably invest passively in more. But same thing, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bite that off myself. I'm not going to you know start raising money for the new developments because it's not something that, that I know how to do yet. But still, right. a great it's great enough investment that I'm I'm still dipping my toes in in a different way. Yeah, yeah so we've invested in a lot of other. Yeah. Adventures, you know, including real estate outside of multifamily too. But again, to your point, Brian, it's like I'm hooked up with somebody that's been there, done that, that I know, like, and trust, and I'll invest passively with them. But I'm not trying to go out and do all those things on my own. Yeah, gotcha. okay. totally understand that. And so, when you're syndicating, 
like uh, what metrics are you looking in regards to um, your hold patterns, your hold terms? Like, are you looking for a five-year hold, 10-year hold? Um, you know, when we do pro formas, when, you know, when I play around with them, you know, we, we, we kind of, it's different in New York, obviously, but uh, do you look at it at a case-by-case basis or are you looking to hit target um, metrics each time? You know, um, tip will underwrite for five, six years, depending on the deal. Rarely it'll be seven, but let's say five or six years. And some investors will say, well, I want to know exactly what your exit strategy is in year five. Well, mm-hmm. you know what? I would never invest in a deal if someone told me I'm selling in year five. Why would I do that? The market could be horrible at that time. So you need multiple exit strategies. We've had properties where we said, hey, well, it's a five-year pro forma, and we sold in 14 months. It made sense to do it. We have properties we said we're going to hold it five years, probably hold it 10 years because we put $20,000 of door of CapEx in it. Um, return the money through a refi that's cash flowing. So why not hold it longer and things like that? So I think, so it's a good question because actually someone in our group just asked, they want to do, you know, this long-term and present it that way. I, I said, personally, just based on investor pool that we have, I think you're better off showing two options or more, but two options. This would look like we sell in your five. This would look like if we actually hold it longer. One guy in a group, younger guy, probably about your age, he's uh, able, he's been syndicating for, you know, a year and a half, two years and able to raise capital and do a lot of things on his own. But he's trying to uh, present 20 year hold. And I'm like, I'm 50 years old. So, so I don't want to present 20 year old, a 20 year hold for people that are, you know, my age. Now they might say great, but most people aren't going to. So I think you have to be what you need to understand your investor. But having a single exit and only one exit is not a good good option for sure. But I wouldn't go less than typically five years unless you're just doing flips. Um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't go more, I mean, maybe ten years for for me on the high side. I would never probably probably present anything past that. Okay. We usually do three to five years, and a lot of it depends on you know the loan that that we're able to get for each property. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the properties we're doing, we're putting ten to twenty thousand a door in in capex, uh, which takes it out of you know permanent debt. We're doing bridge on a lot of our properties, which three year extendable to five year terms. So what we're telling our investors is, here's what it looks like at year three, but you know depending on where the, where the market is, if cap rates continue to compress, we'll probably sell at year three and make a, a boatload. But depending on where the bar- market is. At year three, we could also, you know, refinance and push it out longer, you know, so. Yeah, um, same with us. I have over 20 bridge loans um, and uh, I agree. I mean, you have a pretty big time frame, you know, five years you have, let's say at the end of, you know, 24 months, you're done with your CapEx and everything like that. It gives you essentially three years with the extensions, right, mm-hmm. to really make a decision. So it gives, but it gives you multiple exits versus saying this is what we're going to do in this year. And in worst case is that there are funds and things out there that actually have that and they're required to, you know, legally required to dispose of assets within a certain period of time. And they get to year five and they're like, oh, I have to just sell these assets. Well, what if it's a horrible time to sell? This doesn't make sense uh, to yeah. me. But I think the, you know, less than three years, pretty short, especially in the big value add deals can take you probably two years really to kind of get everything around and everything. It shouldn't. You know, on paper, it's going to take you less than that, but it's probably going to take you two years. And then you said you get a big, big payday, return equity, tax-free, still on the property, right. or you do a, do a sale. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. And, and um, yeah, so one of the reasons why, you know, I thought about that question even more so, um, just thinking about the trajectory, what's happening with, you know, COVID and um, interest rates potentially, um, one key indicator I look at on a daily basis, 10-year treasury, and it's been fluctuating up and down. But, you know, I believe in two years, you know, just this is totally opinionated. These rates are going to go high with the banks. And I think the lending is going to be a little bit shrunken um, in regards to um, being able to uh, recoup money back on. I think this is going to open up opportunities for value add properties. And I, that's why I just want to be able to, um, when I get to that point, then I think there may be opportunity to, to buy properties at a lower premium in a couple of years just because of the, the inflation. I, yeah, I you'll know. see more loan assumptions too. Or we see it now because of all the prepayment penalties people have with agency debt, right? So mm-hmm. with Fannie right. Freddie, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, yep. people are like, oh, we put in perspective, we have an $8.6 million loan. We had $2.6 million prepayment penalty after five and a half years. Wow. I mean, what are you going to do, right? Yeah. So if you sell it, most likely you're going to sell it on an assumption. I think as rates go higher, if they go higher and people are getting rates, you know, people will assume those loans. In some cases, they assume it with a supplemental loan, get to 75%. Um, if it's allowable, rates going a little higher isn't necessarily a bad thing for people selling. It's not necessarily a bad thing for people buying either, but you might have to do a loan assumption instead to yeah. make it really work. Yeah, we, we've done two loan assumptions and we've actually got higher than market rates right now on both. Um, yeah. But we were able to negotiate purchase price down. So based on those, I mean, nobody wants to assume a 5.1% loan, you know, in 2021. <laughs> right. But because they were facing a $2 million per prepayment penalty, we were able to knock that price down significantly. But that's right. Yeah, lot lot there. So Anyway, we're about out of time, guys. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. One question for each of you to, to end things. I mean, how can listeners learn more about you? Mark, you go first. Sure. Yeah, they can just uh, visit our website, thinkmultifamily.com, or you can email me at mark, M-A-R-K, at thinkmultifamily.com. Love to hear from your listeners. Perfect. And Marquis, same question for you. Yeah, likewise, um, I'm active on LinkedIn. You can just Type my name in Marquise Campbell. Um, if you would like to email me, um, it's 1111LLC92 at gmail.com. Yep. Um, I'll be more than happy to answer any questions and um, collaborate. Yep. So anybody listening, if you want to contact them, you want to learn more about them, head down to the show notes and tap and that magical internet thing will whisk you away. So once again, thank you so much for coming on the show today, guys. I, I think this is a, a great little episode and I enjoyed it a ton. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week. <laughs>